It's a privilege to open the Word of God with you while uh, Pastor Mike is out on vacation. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to our text, we'll be in John chapter 7, um, verses 37 to 39. John chapter 7, um, verses 37 to 39. Let me ask you a question. When's the thirstiest you've ever been in your life? I remember training for my soccer team and we would just run and run and run and run back and forth, you know, 100 yards there and 100 yards back and a mile here and then we'd take a quick break and then another mile. My mouth would get as dry as leather. Right? There would be a foam that would develop, kind of cake the inside of your mouth. My lungs would be on fire. I was just gasping for breath. My throat was dry and cracked. Actually, I still remember my soccer coach's voice in my mind as he would just urge us to keep on going. He would just say, push it, push it. And I was recently able to reconnect with him. He actually became a believer not too long ago. And I told him, you know, Rafa, I still have your voice in the back of my mind just telling me to push it, push it. Your head would start spinning and all you can think about is water. Now, no matter what thirst you and I have experienced, our thirst is nothing compared to the thirst of three men on the Pacific Ocean in the year 1943. In May of that year, 11 men in a B-24 were performing a search and rescue mission over the Pacific when two of its engines suddenly lost power, driving the plane into the ocean. Only three of the 11 crewmen survived, one of whom was a man by the name of Louis Zamperini, a Torrance, California native, and a former Olympic runner. In the Olympics in Germany, just a couple years prior to that, he'd actually met Adolf Hitler. And he was a contender for someone who would break the four-minute mile. For 47 days, 47 long days, these men were stranded at sea on rafts. Now, the previous record for people who were stranded on the ocean on rafts was about 21 days, I think. So they shattered this record. One of these three men eventually died from abject despair. They had some survival food with them, and while the rest were sleeping, he secretly ate the food And the guilt of that action just drove him to despair. He never recovered from his guilt, and he eventually died. The other two survived, but just barely. For food, they caught fish, birds, and sharks, and ate them raw. Their weight dropped to below 100 pounds. But more than hunger, what drove them to the brink of insanity and death was thirst. They were desperate for water. They went for days without a drink. And the unlimited supply of water on which they floated was undrinkable. And so desperate was their need, they resorted to soaking their bodies in seawater and filling their mouths with it only to spit it out. Now, as they were floating on rafts, there were sharks encircling their raft. So they would wait for the sharks to just get a little bit beyond them. They would dive into the water to cool off their bodies. And as the sharks would come back to them, they would, the other two would lift them out of the water and bring them back on the rafts. And they survived, 
by rain. The winds of providence blew rain clouds over them, and then and only then could they drink. Twice the clouds were just beyond them, tantalizing them, beckoning them. It's still beyond them. And frantically, these men rode to reach the clouds, but when they got there, the rains had ceased. This left them exhausted and broken, and when they saw the next rain cloud on the horizon, they had no energy or hope to chase it down. Now, their thirst eventually drove them not to insanity, but to prayer. And God answered their prayer, sending rains on them when they cried to him. After one six-day stretch without rain, Louis promised that if God sent them rain, he would dedicate his life to serving him. Now, if you know this story, Louis was a prisoner of war in Japan. He was set free, came back to L.A., got married, and his marriage was about to implode when his wife dragged him to a Billy Graham crusade and he gave his life to Christ. So let me ask you this. Are you thirsty today? Not just for water, but for something more. Are you thirsty in your soul? Perhaps you are like these stranded, drifting men. When the rains come, it quenches your thirst, but only briefly. Then the rains disappear and your soul is back where it began, thirsty. Or perhaps you've seen clouds in the distance and you frantically, desperately chase after them, convincing yourself that this time it will be different. This time, the money, the prestige, the relationship, the pleasure that you so desperately wanted will finally do away with the gnawing dissatisfaction that eats away at your soul. But this time, just like every other time, you come up empty. Broken and bruised, burned out and jaded, dead in your soul. And maybe now you see a cloud in the distance, but because you've been burned so often, you have no energy, no hope, no belief to chase it down. But you are still thirsty, desperately so, and maybe you are even now crying out to God to send the rains and quench your thirst. If this is you today, Jesus has words for you. This is what you must do. Drink from Jesus and live. Let's read our text. John 7, 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, that is the Feast of Booths, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Drink from me and live, Jesus tells us. Let's place this passage in its context. By this time, Jesus' popularity had already begun to diminish. The Jewish leaders were already trying to kill him because he had claimed equality with God in John chapter 5. And many of his own disciples had already left him, so hard were his claims, John chapter 6. The time of year is around the middle of October, and Jesus is at the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem, And this was one of the three feasts in which all the males, all the Jewish males, must come to Jerusalem to celebrate. So Jesus here is addressing, through the Jewish males, all of the Jewish people. Now the Feast of Booths was an exuberant celebration of God's provision to the nation. If one word could be used to describe that feast, it would be joy. Israel had just finished gathering their summer harvest from fruit trees. And these trees are called splendid trees, according to Leviticus 23, 40. They had just gathered the grapes from which they made wine. Now, the Feast of Booths was a celebration of the good life. The grain harvest earlier in the year was a harvest that they needed to sustain their lives with bread. That harvest was necessary for basic living. But the summer harvest, which culminated in the Feast of Booths, was the ingathering of the crops that made life enjoyable. If you garden, you know that the summer sun makes the fruit sweet. You need that heat to sweeten your crops. Deuteronomy 16, 15 Reads this. For seven days you shall feast, keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands. And here it is, so that you will be altogether joyful. This feast also commemorated God's care for Israel after the Exodus during their 40 years in the wilderness. In the wilderness, God gave them water out of the rock. He warmed them and lit their way with the cloud of, or the pillar of fire. And when all the Jewish males came to Jerusalem, they would build themselves these little huts of sticks. And they would live in those huts for seven days as they celebrated. Now by Jesus' time, daily during the seven days of the feast, the high priest would bring water from the Gihon Spring, the pool of Siloam, and offer it on the altar to remember God's provision of water out of the rock during those 40 years. The people then recited Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now this statement was an acknowledgement, a prayer to God to send the fall rains to sustain them. The Mishnah, a book of Jewish tradition says this, 
Anyone who has not witnessed the rejoicing of the libation water well, this this celebration, this, this ceremony of the pouring out of water, has never seen rejoicing in his life. Again, the theme of joy. So Israel would remember God's care for them in the wilderness. They celebrated the sweet summer harvest and they acknowledged their need for the fall rains. And they would also look forward to the coming of the Messiah and the overflowing bounty of his kingdom. Zechariah 14, verses 16 to 19, describes the celebration of the Feast of Booths in the Millennial Kingdom in Messiah's reign by all the nations. All the nations would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. So Israel was thirsty for rain, and they were thirsty for the Messiah. And it was at this feast when all the Jewish males confessed their great thirst. Not just for water, but for a Savior. That Jesus stood up and called out to them. And his cry was, drink from me and live. Look at Jesus' cry, his plea under three headings. First, he says, come and drink, verse 37. It was on the last day of the feast, the great day when Jesus cried out. Now, this was the climax of the feast. And Jesus had already appeared to the people halfway through the feast, and he was teaching them. And public opinion in this chapter was divided. Some thought he was a prophet. Others thought he was the Messiah. Still others thought that he was demon-possessed. And they argued, they squabbled amongst themselves about who Jesus was. And Jesus is saying, enough, enough arguing. You must decide what you will do with me. You have all the information you need. You have all of the proofs you need. You have all of the miracles you need to know who I am. Enough talking. Come to me and drink. Notice whom Jesus addresses. He says, if anyone thirsts. Jesus was calling the thirsty. You must be dissatisfied with what this world has to offer you. It's money, it's glory, it's prestige, it's allure. You must be dissatisfied with sin. You must be discontent with your own glory. There must be a hunger within you for a relationship with God and for all the blessings that God gives. So are you thirsty today? Has this world left you empty, broken, and parched? It should People will fail us, our riches will vanish, our glory is fleeting, our pleasures are momentary. And notice that Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, it doesn't matter who you are today. It doesn't matter the mess you've made of your life. It doesn't matter how far you've strayed from God. 
doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, a famous person or a nobody. Jesus invites you. Now, you might find yourself in several categories, in one of several categories. You might be like the prodigal son, frequently straying. You've been burned by your own rebellion, yet you somehow, again and again and again, find yourself feeding from the same filthy trough. Like a dog returning to its own vomit, you feast in your folly. Perhaps you are caught in the grip of sexual sin, an immoral relationship, or pornography, and you are enslaved. Now we sometimes talk about sin like it's an addiction. The Bible doesn't use the word addiction for sin. It uses enslavement. Sin totally dominates us. Beloved, if we are in the grip of sin, we are not addicted. We are enslaved. And sin is our cruel master. And maybe you're at the place where you vow to never go back to your sin. But again and again and again you go. And Jesus speaks to you today just as he spoke to the woman at the well with the very same promise that's before us. Now, if you remember, this Samaritan woman went from man to man to man. Five husbands she had. Hopefully not simultaneously, but successively, right? Five husbands. And the man with whom she was with, when Jesus met her, was not her husband. And she was seeking security and satisfaction in these men. But she was empty and she was thirsty. And Jesus promised her, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And then she says, give me this water. And then Jesus put his finger right on the issue. Right? Go and call your husband. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right. Because you've had five husbands and the man that you're with now is not your husband. And then she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Right? But not only is he a prophet, she comes to the conclusion that he is the savior of the world. If you are the prodigal son, if you are the Samaritan woman, Jesus calls to you today, come and drink. But maybe you're not the prodigal child. You might be the smug and self-satisfied older brother. You have been fastidious in your religion, avoiding the worst sins. In fact, you look down on those who are defiled in those sins. You put on a mask of religion, but you know that this is a mere cover that masks your inward sinfulness. And your wicked desires and thoughts are frightening to you. No one else knows your thoughts. But God knows. And you know that God knows. 
You are scared that someone might find out how sinful you really are. And you are scared of God because you know that he sees all things. He sees past your mask. And you know that for all your religious law-keeping, you lack a relationship with God. And he is distant from you. And you are thirsty. You are thirsty for more than just religion. You are thirsty for more than just outward conformity. You are thirsty for a relationship with God. Then you are like Nicodemus in John chapter 7, the great teacher of Israel who lacked a relationship with God. Now, if you remember Nicodemus from John 3, Jesus confronts him with his need to be born again. Nicodemus is like, how can these things be? And Jesus responds, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? You need to be born again. You need to have life in your soul, not just physical life, but you need to come into a relationship with the living God. Your Jewish ancestry, your religious law-keeping is insufficient. Now, Nicodemus was here on that day, the great day, the last day of the Feast of Booths. And there was a great quarrel in the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling group of Israel, about who Jesus was and what to do with him. What's interesting is that Nicodemus, on that day, came to Jesus' defense. And this is what he said in verse 50 and 51. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, the Sanhedrin, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now, what's interesting to me about Nicodemus' statement is Nicodemus is confessing to them, Guys, I am listening. I am hearing. I'm hearing to what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is saying, if you are thirsty, come to me and drink. And that is striking a chord within me. Because all of this that we have is still leaving us empty. Jesus calls to the self-righteous. The self-righteous who knows their need of something more. He says to them, come to me and drink. But maybe you're not like the woman at the well or like Nicodemus. You might be like the Pharisees and Sadducees, the, one, the ones who wanted to arrest Jesus and, and put him to death. These Pharisees and Sadducees had everything they wanted. In fact, if you, if you look at the Gospels and see why they wanted to put Jesus to death, it's because he was confronting them, confronting their love of money. He was threatening their position of power. They came to the conclusion and said, if we let this man, Jesus, go on like this, the Romans will come and take away our position of preeminence. Why did they kill Jesus? It's because they were satisfied with what this world had to offer them. They were not thirsty. One of my friends from 
college, I played soccer with this guy a lot. He um, was a good friend. And I just told him one time, I said, I, I just wish, I wish that you would know my Savior. That's all I want for you. And he said to me, Luke, I don't need Jesus. His answer haunts me because I know that he does. He might not think he does, but God made him for more. And if that is you this morning, if your attitude in life is, I don't need Jesus, I've got everything I need in life. The cup that you are drinking from today is a poisoned cup. Yes, you may find it sweet now, but it will be bitter in the end. If not in this life, then in the life to come. You'd be like Edmund, right? In the line, the witch in the wardrobe. When the white witch gave him some Turkish delights. And he found it sweet, but it almost killed him. Judgment awaits you. For God created you to worship him, but not only do you worship the creation, you worship yourself. That is the greatest sin of all. To worship yourself above the creator and above the savior. And do you not know, do you not know that what God offers you, what Jesus offers you today far surpasses anything this world has to offer you. You are trading the treasure of heaven, Christ himself, for trash that will one day burn. And to you today, Jesus calls. Come to me and drink. Or perhaps you are a young one, a child who has yet to taste either the full bitterness of sin or the sweetness of Christ. Children, listen to me. Young ones, listen. Taste the sweetness of Christ. Taste the sweetness of Christ when you are still young because he is sweet beyond all measure. And sin will only, only bring you pain and sadness. And it will one day lead to your death. So spare yourself the pain of wandering. And commit yourself to Christ from an early age. You don't have to taste of this world to know that your Savior is sweet. Come to Jesus today. And he calls to you today. Come to me and drink. 
If anyone is thirsty, Jesus says, come to me and drink. He is the only source of life, the only source of joy. Drink from him and you will never thirst again. And all of your longings will be met in him and exceeded in him. Your cup will not just be full, it will be overflowing beyond your comprehension. But first, you must come. Stop waiting in the shadows. Stop hiding behind the tree. Stop putting this off. Come out of the darkness. Leave your sin. Come to Jesus and drink. Drink deeply and don't stop drinking. For there is no limit to his perfection. No end to his glory. Now, So many of us treat Jesus like a cup of coffee in the morning, right? We drink our, well for many of us, we drink our fill in the morning. For some of us we might keep on drinking all day long. But for most of us we drink our fill in the morning, put it aside, right? And we don't think about it until the next day. Instead of moment by moment, hour by hour, drinking deeply from Jesus. Drink from me and live, Jesus says. How? We must come and drink, point one. Second, we must believe and live, verse 38. How do we come to Jesus and drink? We must believe. Verse 38, whoever believes in me, Jesus says, the starting point is faith. You must believe, you must be absolutely convinced to the depth of your being that only Jesus can give you life. And then you must forsake your idols that you thought would give you life. And here, here is what is at the heart of idolatry. We worship what we think will give us life. We worship our jobs because we think they will give us ultimate security. We worship our relationships, our families, because we think they will give us the acceptance and love we long for. Let me just say this. Right? Working in, in youth group, there is a God-glorifying desire for a relationship in marriage. There can be an idolatrous desire for a relationship and marriage. And it becomes idolatry when we seek that relationship to satisfy, to fill the need in our hearts for love and acceptance and belonging and security. Now, does a marriage provide that? Amen. But, but fully and totally? in a way that can totally make us feel accepted and, and loved and secure? No, of course not, because we are fallen. Only God can give us that. We worship our pleasures because we think we need those to feel alive. We get an emotional high from them. We worship that which we think will give us life. And these can be good things, but they cannot give us ultimate satisfaction. 
In fact, I think idolatry is at the heart of the desire for suicide. Because when we are worshiping our idols and seeking life from these idols, and then when God takes our idols away, what we were seeking life from is no longer there. And then so the thinking goes, why even live? The Bible calls our idols broken cisterns, vessels that can hold no water. They will not satisfy our thirst. And Jesus calls us to reject the lie that our idols can give us life. He calls us to come to him and say, Jesus, only you can give me life. Only you are worth living for. Only you can give me the ultimate security, acceptance, love, and belonging. Only you can thrill my heart. Jesus, only you can bring deep and lasting joy. Jesus, only you. All I have is Christ, we just sang. All I have is Christ. And if you believe that, if you come to Jesus and drink from him, then this is Jesus' promise to you. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, the, the Jews in that day would have understood what living water was. Now, going to Israel, some parts of Israel are extremely green. Some parts are extremely brown, dry. We went to Masada, right, Herod's fortress in the wilderness of Judea. Let me tell you, that place was bone dry, bone dry. And he hewed out for himself these massive underground cisterns, these huge holes in the mountain that would collect the rainwater. That was not living water, water in cisterns. Living water was water from a spring, like at the headwaters of the Jordan River in the north, that was moving, clean, undefiled, and filled with life. Water in cisterns could get stale and old. It didn't move. It wasn't fresh. What Jesus is saying is that if you believe in him, there will be a never-ending spring of life in your soul that will quench your deepest longings and thirsts. And no one and nothing can take your joy or your life away from you because he himself will hide that spring of living water deep within you. It will not be outside of you, but within. And these living waters, according to Jesus, were promised in the scriptures. And I don't think he has one verse in mind, but a collection of promises and verses. For example, in Isaiah 55, 1, God says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, right? And he is the fountain of living waters, which is interesting because Jesus says, come to me and drink. Who is Jesus? He's God. Isaiah 58, 11, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. 
And Jesus is saying, if you want to drink like the Old Testament promised, if you want to drink and never be thirsty again, then you must come to me. Because belief in Jesus brings life. We gain access to that spring of living waters. Which means that a rejection of Jesus brings death. Sin promises life, but it only brings death. Now if you look at someone caught, enslaved, dominated by sin, you look at their countenance, there is a deadness there, a hollowness. But find a man or woman who is deeply satisfied in Jesus and is drinking from him no matter what comes in life, and you will see someone who is alive, filled with joy. There's a brightness to their countenance. There is a joy that cannot be conquered. Not an artificial joy. Not a joy that is unmixed with grief at times. Even Paul says we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Even Jesus himself says, my soul is troubled, right? But amidst the difficulties of life, the believer in Jesus is always rejoicing. So has sin killed you today? Today, in your rejection of Jesus, do you find yourself dead in your soul? Jesus invites you to believe in him and live. So come to him and drink, point one. Believe in him and live, point two. And third, you must receive and worship. Verse 39. Now what did Jesus mean by living water? The Apostle John tells us in verse 39, verse 39. I love the book of John because sometimes you don't need a commentary because the Apostle John is the commentary on what Jesus is speaking of. I think John 3.16 to the end of that chapter is the Apostle John's commentary on Jesus' words. And here as well, we have an inspired commentary on Jesus' words. Now this, he, that is Jesus, said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. What is this living water? This living water is the Spirit of God. Now it's interesting, when you get to the description of the new Jerusalem, the eternal state, the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22, It says that God the Father and the Lamb, that is Jesus, are sitting on the throne together. And you're like, where's the Spirit? We believe in a trinity. And then it says that a river of water was flowing from the throne. And the idea there that it's flowing from the throne and it waters the entire earth to give it life. Now it's a real river, but I think that river is a symbol of the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son to give life. 
Hear me now. The, our understanding of the Spirit of God is so diminished. It was diminished for me. I think at some level it still is. If you asked me several years ago why God gives the Spirit to us, I would have said, well, to help us to obey. And it's as if the sole function of the Spirit is to be like a battery or a force that comes within us and, and moves us to obey. Now, does the Spirit move us to obey? Amen and amen. I, I, I don't want to diminish that. But if I can put it this way, there is a primary purpose of the Spirit beyond just rote obedience. Look at the text at the end of verse 39. Those who believe in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, but the Spirit had not yet been given. Why? Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. This clues us into why the Spirit is given to us. The Spirit did not come until Jesus was glorified. How was Jesus glorified? By his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. And once Jesus died, rose, and ascended, then he sent the Spirit to his people with this purpose. That the Spirit might cause us to worship the crucified, resurrected, ascended Christ. The Spirit wants us to worship the exalted Savior. And it's as we worship the risen Lord that we have life. That is life. Worshiping Christ. Jesus said this of the Spirit in John 16, 14. He will glorify me. The Spirit is going to point you to me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, I think this is where the charismatic movement goes so wrong. Because the emphasis is on the Spirit. But if we were to focus on the Spirit, the Spirit would tell us, no, I want you to focus on Christ. What is life? Worshiping Christ. And there is no greater source of life than worshiping Christ. We rejoice in his crucifixion because by his wounds we are healed. By his blood we are forgiven. By his sacrifice we are set free. By his death we die to our sin. The Spirit wants us to rejoice in that. We exult in Christ's resurrection because when he rose, we rose. When he emerged from the grave, the power over us, the power of sin over us was broken. And he was raised for our justification. That is, his perfect life was given to us. So that as we approach the Father in the righteousness of Christ, we are accepted and welcomed. We glory in Jesus' ascension to his Father's right hand. And I believe this is the most precious and glorious of all gospel truths. Because we are united to the Son of God, when the Son went into the Father's presence, we went with him to the Father. 
And we can now, through the Son, approach the Father and call God Almighty, the creator of the galaxies, Abba, Father. Because we are united to the Son. And the Son is now seated at the Father's right hand. God is not distant from us, but he draws near to us in tender, affectionate love and compassion. For he is our Father through the Son. And we enter into the very life, the fellowship, the joy of the triune God. The Spirit comes within us, then he brings our souls through the Son who is the way to the Father, the fountain of all love and life. And we are embraced by Father, Son, and Spirit. And because the Spirit permanently lives within us, and the Spirit is inseparably bound to the Father and the Son, we are welcomed into their embrace and they will never let us go. So receive the Spirit and worship the Savior who brings you to his loving Father. Now think about this. Our, our Spirit-compelled obedience then takes on a whole new flavor, doesn't it? We obey, not just to obey, we obey because we love. We love our Savior. We serve others because we want to imitate Christ. We reject our sin because our Savior is sweeter than sin. Our obedience is now fueled by our love for Christ. I want to just encourage you today. If you are battling sin, if you are caught in the grip of sin, if there is a sin that constantly brings you down and you are beset by it, you've, you've tried all the, the tips and tricks, right? Everything to help you stop doing what you're doing. But those tips and tricks just don't work. And they will never work until you deal with the heart of sin. Will you drink from your sin or will you drink from Christ? And then once you are convinced that Christ will satisfy you infinitely beyond your sin, then you will have the power to say no. If all you do is just say, no, no, I, I, I gotta stop, stop, stop. It won't work. What will you do? You must drink from Christ. So let me finish with this. Some of you today know you are thirsty. You know this world is empty, but you have yet to come to Jesus and drink. Jesus calls to you. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink and you will be satisfied. Don't wait any longer. And you start by coming to him. 
for he will welcome you with open arms. He will show you grace, not judgment. Mercy, not anger. If you do believe in Christ, I want to challenge you with this. So often the Christian life can become a series of routines. We check off all the things we need to do. We do our devotions, go to work, go to small group, go to church, go to bed, rise and repeat. Right? And as we go through our day, we stop thinking about Christ. But Jesus says, come to me and drink. And that's not just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing, moment by moment, drinking from Jesus. The reason we get so discouraged, downcast, and defeated is we stop going to the springs of living water. We stop going to Christ. May Jesus be before us every moment of the day. So meditate upon him. Read about him in his word. Commune with him. Pray to him. Talk to others about him. Delight in Christ. Your soul should always be feasting on the Savior. And that's a kind of gluttony the Bible endorses, right? right? May we be gluttonous with Christ. And that's what it means to be spirit-led. If you are thirsty, come to Jesus. That should be all of us. Drink from him and live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we praise you for in Christ, in your Son, you have given us life. And he calls to us today to come to him, to leave our idols behind and to drink deeply. So Father, I pray that your Spirit would move us to come. If there are those here who are making all kinds of excuses in their minds about why they will not come or why they will put this off until the moment is right, Father, I pray that you would shatter those excuses. Help them. Give them a glimpse of Christ. And may his words draw them near. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.